Praise the Lord today, and this is Pastor Adams, President and Founder of Truth Matters Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you once again for joining our Truth Matters podcast. We've been in the very dynamic teaching series entitled Eschatology or the End Times. So many important concepts and biblical truths that have been established so that we can have proper footing and that we can walk in biblical orthodoxy and orthopraxy as it relates to our relationship with our Lord. Before we get into our teachings today, we want to pause and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you said there has not failed one of all of the precious promises that you've given unto your children Israel. And we thank you today, God, that we know that everything that you've promised, Lord God, you shall surely bring it to pass. This is the confidence that we have in you, Lord, that if we ask anything, According to your will, we know that you hear us, and we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of you. We thank you today that you care. We give your name glory today because we know that you see everything that's happening in our lives. Lord, you know our frame. You know our uprising. You know our downsitting. You know our thoughts afar off. You know our frailties, God. You know our strengths and weaknesses. Lord, we thank you today that you loved us enough to go to Calvary and shed your blood. The righteous for the unrighteous, the guiltless for the guilty. And you've imputed, Lord, your righteousness on our account. We thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we thank you that we can walk circumspectly before you, letting our light shine before men, that they can see our good works and give you glory in heaven. You bless someone in a great way. Let someone be saved. Let someone, God, grab a hold of the truth of your word that they may be able to expound and share men about the mighty working plan of salvation that you have for every person. It's in Jesus' name we pray. As we continue in our series on eschatology, just mindful of the words that were spoken by Blaise Pascal, he said, that truth is so obscure in these days and falsehoods have been so well established that unless we love the truth, he says that we can't even know it. Now, if we start into our teaching today, Tim Hay, we're talking about when the actual destruction of Jerusalem took place and when the actual recording of the book of Revelation was. Tim LaHaye places the date of John recording the book of Revelation at AD 95. Now, he arrived at that date solely on a single ambiguous sentence in the writings of Arrhenius. The sentence can be translated as, John's apocalyptic vision was seen toward the end of Domitian's reign. LaHaye and other teachers don't really notice the absence of credibility of Arrhenius. For Arrhenius also wrote that Jesus was 40 or 50 years old when he was crucified on Golgotha. Arrhenius recorded many truths, but when his writings clearly contradict biblical truth, we must resist it. Now consider the following. What if you were currently sitting down in Manhattan and you were reading a newly released book about terrorism in New York City? As you're reading this book from cover to cover, you read about the attempt and the bombing at Fort Dix, New Jersey, right across the bay. You read about the failed attempt to blow up the fuel that was at the Kennedy Airport and even the bombings in 1994 at the World Trade Center. As you begin to read all of those things about terrorism in New York City, 
the author in the book didn't even mention 9-11. How could you write a book about terrorism in New York City and overlook the most cataclysmic event in New York City history? Now, this is the absurdity for Revelation to have been written after A.D. 70. And John, who was a Jewish Christian, who saw Peter and Paul murdered and knowing the epicenter of all Jewish culture and history was destroyed and never mentioned it? Dr. Norman Geisler writes, Here's the problem for those who say the New Testament was written after A.D. 70. There's no mention of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem in any New Testament documents. This means that most, if not all, of the documents must have been written prior to A.D. 70. If that was not a reasonable position to futurists, the scriptures themselves oppose the myth that Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to what John wrote in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. He said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now this is conclusive. The prophecy is about a future event that will soon occur. John wrote that Jerusalem will be destroyed and trampled for three and a half years. The temple and the city still existed, so John wrote Revelation before A.D. 70. The event took place in A.D. 70. So this is proof positive that Jesus' prophecy about the 666, the beast, and the tribulation period are not about a 21st century event but it's an event that Jesus said would be fulfilled in their generation. Now we're going to discuss two very important factors, and that is the rapture and Christ's return. You see, Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey in their portrayal of eschatological events say, most believers take Bible prophecies literally, <clears throat> believing Christ will rapture the church to heaven, just as he promised in John 14. Christians believe that the earth will undergo a seven-year tribulation period, as described in Revelation 6 and 18. And they also believe that Christ will return in glory, set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, take all Christians to heaven, and live there forever with him. Now, prior to the 19th century, all Christians, futurists included, believed a common-sense reading of Scripture inevitably led to the conclusion that the second coming bodily return of Christ and the rapture resurrection of believers were simultaneous events. You see, the plain reading of passages like John 14 did not lead believers to hold to a pre-tribulational rapture viewpoint. This viewpoint was derived and invented in the 19th century by John Nelson Darby. Who was he? He was the father of dispensationalism. Darby didn't arrive at this position from a reading of the scripture, no. Rather, as historian Timothy Weber points out, Darby perceived the pre-tribulational rapture after he presupposed the absolute distinction between Israel and the church and the prophetic, prophetic plans of God. That's how he arrived at that conclusion. Now, the president of the Christian Research Institute, Hank Hanegraaff, writes, 
1831, the same year that Charles Darwin sailed away from England, was the year that a disillusioned priest named John Nelson Darby, he left the Church of England and he joined a separatist millenarian group that was called the Plymouth Brethren in the English city of Plymouth. And just like Charles Darwin, he imposed a speculative spin on science and religion. So did Darby. He imposed a subjective spin on scriptural data that he encountered in Plymouth. Darby contended that God had two distinct people with two distinct plans and two distinct destinies. And based upon those presuppositions, only one of those peoples, the Jews, would suffer tribulation. Did you hear what I said? The other, the church, would be removed from the earth in a secret coming seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. Darby's distinctive twist on scripture would shortly come to be known as dispensational eschatology. You see, friends and brethren, the core of the dispensational thought was birthed in racism and anti-Semitism. That's right. The church viewed dispensationalism as a religion of obscuritism of the socially disheartened and psychologically disturbed and theologically naive. False prophets like Joseph Smith were going around spouting, Christ will return before I'm 85 years old. Even famous Baptist orator William Miller suggested that Christ's return would be in the year 1843. Watchtower President Judge Rutherford prophesied that Christ was returning to the earth in 1914. It didn't happen, so then he said they were going to come while he was in Beth Sarim in San Diego in 1925. That didn't happen. And then the Society of Jehovah Witnesses said Armageddon and Christ's return would occur in 1975. And that didn't happen. See, history records so many false ideas about Christ's return and the Antichrist identity. Dispensationalists allege that the Catholic pontiffs of the Roman Catholic Church were the Antichrist. Hmm. Many speculate that according to Revelation 11, that precisely 1,260 days after the rise of the Roman papacy in AD 538, the reign of the beast would come to an abrupt end. You see just how many erroneous ideas and concepts have been perpetrated upon the church throughout history. See, one of the great errors of dispensationalism is its concept of the Catholic Church being the harlot spoken of in Revelation 17. You can read many Bible commentators who are influenced by Darbyism insert the presuppositions in their commentaries of end-time prophecies. I've read so many of them. Modern apocalyptic teachers, taking their cue from Darby, espouse that the papacy and the Roman church is a religious system that the Bible speaks of. See, this error in identification underscores a reason that so many well-intentioned teachers mislead their hearers. The scriptures resonate the aroma of history. If one would only listen to the background music of history, they would hear Hosea strumming in the epic drama of being married to a harlot in Hosea 9 and 1. They would hear Jeremiah humming that Israel identified as a prostitute in Jeremiah 2 and 20. The portrayal of Israel being a prostitute is even more brazen in Ezekiel 23, verse 14 through 16. 
You see, Ezekiel's portrayal of Israel as an insatiable prostitute is particularly significant in light of the self-evident parallels to Revelation. Which ones are you talking about, Pastor Adams? Well, let's compare the descriptions of the four living creatures in Ezekiel 1 with Revelation 4. Then, let's compare the mark on the foreheads of the saints in Ezekiel 9 to Revelation 7. And then the eating of the scroll in Ezekiel 3 to Revelation 10. To the measuring of the temple in Ezekiel 40 to Revelation 11. And even from Gog, Magog, and Ezekiel 38 to Revelation 22. Nowhere are parallels more poignant than in Ezekiel 16 when you compare it with Revelation 17. They're sequentially linked and they're memorable. You see, Israel had become a harlot prostitute. Who can forget the chorus of the Jewish crowds in John 19 and 15 when the Roman authorities inquired who the Jews esteemed as their king and they replied, we have no king but Caesar. All of the Caesars exalted themselves as gods and they killed anyone who did not bow before them. The prostitute bowed and declared, we have no king but Caesar. The book of Revelation was written to also reveal the persecuted bride, which is true Israel. Israel is also revealed as the prostituted bride, apostate Israel. And finally, a purified bride, which is also true Israel, will be revealed in Revelation 22. Why is it important to understand that Israel is the harlot prostitute that's spoken of in prophecy? Because once you embrace that truth, then you will see the apocalyptic teacher's focus on Israel and prophecy is unfounded. You can't turn on Christian television stations without hearing some preachers spouting on and on about Israel and prophecy. One comes to mind, one John Hagee, one of the more vocal proponents and supporters of Israel. He even had the temerity to even teach that Israel does not need to accept Jesus to have eternal life. Wow. How often we are told that God has a covenant with Israel that continues to this day. Christian preachers have not really properly studied their Bibles, for the scriptures proclaim in Romans 2 and 27 that a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but is based upon an inward spiritual relationship with God. That's right. Paul said that circumcision availeth nothing but a new creature in Christ in 1 Corinthians 7 and 18. You see, this circumcision is now effective in a new spiritual birth, according to Colossians 2 and 11. Paul also wrote that those who accepted Jesus as Savior were of Abraham's seed, and they were partakers of the promises and covenants of Abraham, according to Galatians 3 and 28. How can we oppose Christ in all that he and the apostles taught and suggest that God has a relationship with people who reject his son in his work on Calvary? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, there are important questions that must be answered. Does God commune with people based upon race and geography? Does he? When Jesus confronted the Jews in John 8, 37 through 45, they thought that their race and their biological connection to Abraham gave them prominence with God. But Jesus dispelled their error. Jesus said, you are not even connected to Abraham, but I know who your daddy is. Your daddy is the devil. You see, our God is not a cosmic racist. God looks at all men equally. 
Relationships and covenants are based upon our spiritual status. When will modern teachers remember this? We at the biblical, we at our Truth Matters Ministries, we can't fathom the concept that preachers will support and give credibility to Jewish people who still reject Christ and were instrumental in crucifying our Savior. But still to this day, Jews reject and they renounce the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I would ask anyone who may be disturbed with me saying that, just read 1 John 5 and 12. It states, he who has accepts, believes that Jesus is the Savior of the Lord, has life. He who does not have or believe, except Jesus is Savior and Lord, does not have life. When sound biblical teachers declare these truths concerning Israel, they are accused of teaching replacement theology. You see, replacement theology teaches that the church is the replacement for Israel and that the many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church, not in Israel. The prophecies and scriptures concerning the blessings and restoration of Israel to the promised land are spiritualized or allegorized into promises of God's blessings for the church. Major problems exist with this view, such as the continuing existence of the Jewish people throughout the centuries and especially with the revival of the modern state of Israel. If Israel has been condemned by God and there is no future for the Jewish nation, how do we explain the supernatural survival of the Jewish people over the past 2,000 years despite the many attempts to destroy them? How do we explain why and how Israel reappeared as a nation in the 20th century after not existing for 1,900 years? The view that Israel and the church are different is clearly taught in the New Testament, however. Biblically speaking, the church is distinct from Israel. The terms church and Israel never and should never be confused or used interchangeably. We are taught from Scripture that the church is an entirely new creation that came into being on the day of Pentecost and will continue until it is taken to heaven at the resurrection, according to Ephesians 1 and 9. The church has no relationship to the curses and blessings of Israel. The covenants, the promises, and warnings of the Mosaic Covenant were valid only for Israel. Israel has been temporarily set aside in God's program during the past 2,000 years of dispersion. Read Romans 11. Also consider John 14 and 6. It declares uncompromisingly. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to or has part of God without accepting me. John 8 and 24 records the divine indictment against the Jews rejecting him as promised Messiah. When Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Truth Matters Ministries love all Jews. God has no respect of persons. And he desires to save Jews as much as he desires to save any other man. Jewish people, just as Muslims and Mormons and Buddhists and Jehovah Witnesses, are guilty of not believing and coming to Christ, according to John 3.17. Jesus said in Matthew 11 and 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, you'll find rest for your souls. Jews must come to the cross and experience forgiveness of sins and purification by Christ's redemptive work at Calvary. True are the words of the song. Some by the fire and some by the flood, but all must come 
through Jesus Christ's blood. See, Darby presented a concept that God has two people and two plans of salvation. And this bold-faced lie is being perpetrated by so many teachers today. The core of the error is birthed in the presupposition that one people must be raptured in order for God to continue his plan with the other. See, scripture reveals that God has one chosen people purchased from every tribe and every tongue and language and nation, according to Revelation 5 and 9. Paul taught us that mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together in one body and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 3 and 6. Peter calls the church a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation in 1 Peter 2 and 9. The true church is true Israel, and true Israel is truly the church. Say it again, Pastor Adams. The true church is true Israel, and true Israel is truly the church. To suggest that Israel has a separate relationship with God, <clears throat> excuse me, it's absolutely preposterous. Many teachers will present the popular concept that God made promises to Israel that were to last forever. But theologian Keith Matheson states the promises made to literal physical Israelites were fulfilled by a literal physical Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, who is the seed of Abraham. Finally, the one chosen people who form one covenant community <clears throat> are beautifully symbolized in the book of Romans as one cultivated olive tree. Read Romans 11 and 11. See, the tree symbolizes national Israel as its branches symbolize those who believe. And its root symbolize Jesus, the root and offspring of David. Natural branches broken off represent Jews who reject Jesus. Wild branches grafted in represent Gentiles who receive Jesus. This is so clear. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but children of the promise in Christ who are Abraham's offspring are according according to Romans 9 and 6. Now, we're going to look at the covenant of Israel. We see that they are conditional rather than unconditional. Many prophetic teachers like Jack Van Empey and John Hagee suggest that Jerusalem is the internal sacred city of only the Jews. Hagee says the territory of Jerusalem has God's powerful presence in place. Now, in the words of Hank Hanegraaff, president of Christian Research Institute, he says such rhetoric raises a host of timely questions. What is it? Has God given the city Jerusalem exclusively to the Jews? Also, does God regard Jerusalem as a holy city today? We at Truth Matters don't believe it is. When we read where Paul called heaven the Jerusalem from above, in Galatians 4 and 26, God spoke through David and said, The Lord swore an oath to David, an oath that he will not revoke. If your sons keep my covenant, if they do, yes, if your sons keep my covenant and my statutes that I teach them, then their sons will sit in my throne forever. Psalms 132 and 11. Now consider the words of God in Jeremiah. Jesus reveals a valuable truth when in dialogue with the Samaritan woman. She asked, should she continue to worship in the mountain or should she worship in Jerusalem? 
Jesus informed her some very, very critical words for us to understand. Jesus said, nope, not in this mountain, nor in Jerusalem should God be worshipped. Jesus said, the hour is now that the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. From God's perspective, Israel is not a physical nation or people. God sees the descendants of Abraham as those who are heirs with Christ, the true seed of Abraham. When God said in Romans 11 that all of Israel will be saved, he was speaking about the fact that his persecuted bride will shine forth as his purified bride. And true is a declaration in John 10 and 28, everyone that the Father gives me I will bring with me and no one can pluck them out of my hand. The redemptive work of Calvary assures that the eternal salvation of the true church Israel. That's why in Revelation, Jesus was described as the lion from the tribe of Judah. I think it's so important today in this Truth Matters podcast that we remember these very important principles and teachings. And we want you to make sure that you continue to tune in to these podcasts that you can hear the totality of this teaching because it will really give you solid footing and a foundational to stand on as it relates to the orthodox teaching of scripture. Now God bless you today and you continue to pray for us in Jesus name. Amen.